I mean, it's not just, it might not be just such a simple, uh, you know? What in God's holy name are you blathering about? I'll tell you what I'm blathering about. I've got information, man. New shit has come to light. Welcome once again to Cinemaholics from the San Francisco Bay Area. I am John Agroni, film critic for Awards Watch, The Young Folks, and The Spool. From Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend. And he also writes for Cinemaholics.com. It's Will Ashton. That's right. Hello. From Kansas City, Missouri, she is a freelance writer and film editor for The Pitch magazine. Her bylines include RogerEbert.com slash film, Crooked Marquee, and an award-winning Twitter account. It's Abby Olchesi. Hi. You can find more episodes of our show, including our full archive of episodes going all the way back to 2017, all on Cinemaholics.com. You can also find written reviews and other bonus content there. You can write into the show anytime by sending us an email. Uh, Our email, as always, is cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support our show, help us keep the lights on, keep the fun going, please head on over to patreon.com slash cinemaholics. And uh, if you want to support us and get something else back for it, in addition, we have a Cinemaholics merch page you can purchase on our cinemaholics.com website. So get yourself a hoodie, a mug, t-shirt, whatever you like. Links to everything I just mentioned are in the show notes. All right, gang, we have plenty to discuss. Uh, Three big movies. Uh, We have two of them featuring a a very successful musical talent named Billy, uh, but totally, totally different talents. Uh, One's a documentary, and of course, the other one is a biopic. But we're also going to be talking about Tom and Jerry, new film on HBO Max. Plenty to get into, but first, off topics, we have a new extra milestone out for The Silence of the Lambs. I got to talk to Julia Tatey about the classic film, which just celebrated its 30th anniversary, and that was a lot of fun, and we're gearing up for the next extra milestone. Uh, we have it, we're down to like three things, so we're going to be picking that and letting you all know what our March milestone is going to be, so you, you have time to check it out for yourselves. Also managed to do a a little extra episode of the show that is on the feed now discussing Behind Her Eyes with special guest Amanda the Jedi. That was a ton of fun as well. We got to talk about that new Netflix show and it's it's pretty wild. (laughs) But let's move into our voicemail segment. Last week we asked the listeners and we played a few voicemails. Do you prefer new episodes released all at once or week to week? And we got a couple more voicemails we want to play to close out this segment. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about uh, finishing this out, uh, especially in the wake of uh, WandaVision. The latest episode came out. And uh, I want to ask you real quick, Abby, without, you know, no spoilers, no WandaVision spoilers. Uh, how were you feeling? I know we were a little bit like iffy on WandaVision last week. Where, where are you at this week? I want to check in. Oh, I'm still I'm still going great guns for it. I think it's pretty it's it's going going pretty well. Uh, this last episode particularly was kind of an emotional gut punch in a way that I uh, appreciated. I feel like it's not often that uh, the Marvel films effectively deal with like actual grief and loss. And uh, this is one opportunity that I, I can tell like effort was made and I appreciated it. It, it kind of won me back a little bit. You know, I was kind of down on it last week and I'm just feeling a little bit more like, yeah, you know what? I think the week to week thing, I keep going back and forth. I'm like, you know, every week, a new episode of John Negroni. But all right, let's turn it over to our listeners and see what they had to say. Let's play some voicemails. Me personally, I like to watch a show week to week. That way I have something new to look forward to. 
I have friends that like to binge watch shows, but me, myself, I like to watch a new episode one week and then be on a cliffhanger and come back next week and watch a new episode. I often like miniseries for that because it's something to look forward to if I'm not watching a full feature film. So um, me, I like to watch new episodes week to week. You know, as I think about the question, I, I, would, I would additionally ask, you know, do you enjoy anticipation, anticipation of something? Um, do you sometimes the anticipation of an event or a TV show or a sporting event actually exceeds the event itself? Uh, sometimes it's a terrible game, a terrible episode, but the anticipation of, of that kind of gets you through the week sometimes. Or if you're looking forward to uh, the Mandalorian on Friday night, it's, it's, I've seen people say on Thursday, can't wait till tomorrow night. And sometimes that kind of gets you through the week if you're having a bad week. So uh, I think there's value in the, in that anticipation. Now for me personally, um, I, time and, 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 uh, um, a regular episode uh, doesn't jive for me anymore. I forget what night, and I don't watch a lot of TV, but say I like Better Call Saul, which I do. Um, I never know when the season starts. I don't know when the season, uh, I, I don't know if it's going on right now. I don't think it is. Um, but I have the DVR set to record anything new that comes on Better Call Saul. And even when it's in season, I'll go two or three weeks and forget that it's actually on. Um, or I can't view it on that night. So I tend to just pick it up when I can and, and, and watch it at that time. And it, I got to say, sometimes it's nice to watch two or three back to back, uh, fast forward through the commercials. Um, and that's the way I prefer to do it these days. And it's probably out more of necessity than anything. This is a really interesting question because I, uh, I'm going to say that I like them to be released all at once. I like to watch it um, like a couple of episodes at a time and then take a break. And there's just so much more flexibility when it comes to it all being released at once. And I like that level of control. <laughs> um, when I have to wait, uh, I don't know, the anticipation kills me and then I lose motivation to watch it and all this stuff. So, uh, um yeah, definitely all at once. That's all that I have to say. I, I'm just so sure, but not even a difficult decision for me. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and try to, I, I think my main takeaway from the listeners who sent these voicemails in is people want to like the week to week thing and they, like they like it in theory, but it just sounds like everybody's like, yeah, but if I have to pick, I just want it all at once. Do you guys think that's a pretty fair uh, takeaway from uh, this experience? Yeah, I think that's it's pretty close to what I would choose myself. Honestly, um, I like to I, I like it when uh, week to week is kind of enforced upon me in some cases. But often, yeah, if given the uh, the opportunity to uh, watch a lot of stuff in a row versus uh, space it out and uh, allow myself to enjoy it over a longer period of time, I, I will mainline it. Yeah, like breaking news, instant gratification preferred by people who are like entertainment. Uh, I guess that's that's a good place to finish out uh, that segment. Uh, we'll, of course, be doing a new voicemail prompt on the Swell app. So if you want to lend your voice to the show, uh, don't forget to check that out. It is in the show notes. Uh, you can download the Swell app on iOS and Android and follow us on there, Cinemaholics, and hope to see you and hear you pretty soon.
Okay, so we have a mini review from Mr. Will Ashton. Will, you saw a movie that I've been dying to see, uh, but it's it's been a little elusive. Um, the Mauritanian, Mauritanian, something like I, I don't know how to pronounce it myself, but uh, yeah, you had a chance to check this one out. Yeah, I did. I um, Well, when you say it's elusive, I guess what you mean is that I got a screener for it and you did not, unfortunately. So, Well, not I just guess, that, but like the release yeah. of it has been challenging because that happens all the time but usually we're still able to catch things on vod virtual cinema but yeah it's just it's been tricky to get this one yeah so far as i can tell i mean i think it goes on vod this week like by the time people are listening to this i think it will be on vod but yeah as of now it is not which is weird because um it's up for a couple golden gloves or at least one for jodie foster and for whatever reason they didn't make it uh release they didn't release it in time for that for whatever reason but um i will say i mean this is a new film from kevin mcdonald and uh, we recently just saw a film from him uh life in a day 2020 so he's keeping busy uh this story is uh based on the uh memoir from i think a couple years ago called uh guantanamo diaries which it follows our main subject and uh primarily it's you know it's your sort of traditional hollywood take on something that's obviously very pressing and very serious. And I think for that reason, some people are going to be a little turned off because it it does have a bit of a distance to it that I think some people will find maybe inauthentic or insincere or for whatever reason, they just don't think it fully, it doesn't tackle this subject in a way that fully gives it its due. But I will say, I mean, while I had that issue at times with it, and I do think there is a better film that uh, could be realized here that isn't fully realized, I will say our lead performer is, I think, what really makes it count. I'm trying to remember his name. I know he's from A Prophet from 2009. Yeah, I I definitely don't know how to pronounce it, you know, 100% correctly, but his name is Mohamedou Old Salahi. Yeah, that's the uh, subject, but the uh, the actor. Oh, the actor. The actor is Tahar Rahim. Yeah, Tahar Rahim. Uh, he is fantastic. I mean, he really he gives a great performance. I think he is the key to why I believe the movie works because he really brings out the heart and humanity of this real life subject, and I think he really he communicates the the pathos and the real the the humanity of the character in a way that I think the filmmaking otherwise can be somewhat lacking. And uh, I think that's amusing because uh, what's amusing about that to me is that in counterbalance to that is someone like producer Benedict Cumberbatch, who is putting on this very like fake Southern accent. And he's doing your kind of typical like good hearted patriot who realized the error of his ways. And he he unfortunately gets a good bit of the narrative. And that's not to say I dislike Benedict Cumberbatch. I think he's a fine actor uh, more often than not. But throughout the film, he he has this unfortunate, really uh, affected uh, accent throughout the film that is obviously very uh, noticeable and it doesn't quite ring as sincere as uh, our lead's performance. And I think the movie kind of feels like that counterbalance throughout where we get this really authentic moving performance from our lead and then we get like these, you know, like someone like Benedict Cumberbatch who is, you know, doing like this very Hollywoodized performance that uh, ultimately I found more grating than not. And then I guess in between there is Jodie Foster who I will say it's really great to see her again. I don't think I've seen her in a movie since... Um, well, I think that was Hotel Artemis. That yeah, was like 2016. That was a, yeah, that was like the last film with her, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I know there was a, uh, Elysium before that, and that was 2013. So she's been, I think, primarily directing of late. I know she does a lot of Netflix uh, yeah. TV shows, uh, which, you know, good for her. I mean, I'm glad she's directing. I didn't see Money Monster, but I liked her other films like The Beaver and um, uh, what was it? I think she did Home for the Holidays, right, she, with Holly it, Hunter? Her whole thing, yeah. too. I mean, she she's definitely made it pretty clear that she prefers directing to right. acting so uh, yeah i mean you she's know, good and, at it obviously yeah. 
and she doesn't owe me anything. So <laughs> I mean, you know, she she prefers the direct over act. It's fine. Yeah, but I will say, I mean, case. Well, I'm just kidding. yeah. But I mean, I will say, I mean, you know, she is a star, and I think you know you can tell. Like watching her again, seeing her in a movie again, it's just like, oh yeah, like you know, like this is a star. You know, she has you know four decades of experience acting, and you know, it's just nice to see her again. I think she she makes it work, and I think when her her scenes with her lead is what really makes us count. And I think what because the movie is primarily that throughout, uh, uh, besides the uh, Benedict Cumberbatch stuff, I think that's the reason why I'm ultimately more favorable than not on the film, even though it does have. You know, like that, like I said, that that stuff that doesn't really ring sincere, that stuff that feels heavily dramatized, that that is annoying, and I, I don't think really makes it count. But by and large, you know, I think this is a solid, admirable kind of B minus film. Like I don't think I'm going to be thinking about it too much. I don't think it really works as well as it could, but because the stuff that works really works, uh, it it ultimately rounds out to I think a decent film. So I give it a you know light recommendation, but I, I would say it is worth your while overall. I do want to know about uh, Shailene Woodley because let, oh, yeah. let's just be honest. She's been on quite a uh, losing streak, I think, with me, with think? films um, between, I mean, her last few films, Endings, Beginnings, Adrift, oh, okay. Snowden. Yeah, I didn't see that one. <laughs> uh, well, I saw that one, yeah. The Divergent um, movies. I mean, she basically hasn't done a film role that I think has been, in my opinion, very good since like Fault in Our Stars. Sure. So yeah, how, how is she in this? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I keep thinking about the fact that she's in Big Little Lies, yeah, which I think that's she's been quite her good like in, so yeah, that's been her like bright spot for sure. Right, that's been keeping her adrift. Ironically, <laughs> not not adrift. Wait, um, yeah, I was gonna say that's not the right word for that. <laughs> right, um, but yeah, I mean, I think she's pretty good. I mean, I I think she's a good actress. I don't think her role really gives her too much to do. Uh, you know, she's kind of stuck in a stock supporting character role that, I mean, she does what she can with it. I don't I don't think she makes or breaks the film, but, you know, it is nice to see her in a role that isn't uh, in a bad film, I guess, or at least in my opinion, it's not a bad film. So, you know, I guess we'll count that as a uh, not a loss or a win. <laughs> Just, uh, yeah, she she does what she can. She's a good actress. And uh, that's that. I, I mean, I am looking forward to uh, she, she has a couple films coming out this year. Um, one of them I'm not that interested in the the one the high school one i think it's called the fallout but her other movie with uh from uh, augustine frizzell the last letter from your lover i think is called that one i'm really looking forward to um and i think she's an executive producer on that too so who who knows maybe 2021 is going to be her year maybe i mean she's you know she's a really good actress when she gets the right role like the ascendants and uh mm-hmm. i like fault in our stars i know some people don't um you know spectacular now is a really good film so you know She's she's got the goods. I just uh, I, I agree with you though, that her movie filmography isn't quite as strong as her work usually, but we'll see. Cool. Uh, well, that, that's Maratarian. Did did you say uh, you're great on that one? Yeah, I, I think I did. It's a uh, low B minus. Low B minus. You know. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, like you said, it, it's supposed to be hitting digital demand pretty soon. I think it's also coming to Prime Video, like not in March, but like in April. So if you don't want to rent it or anything like that on demand, if you don't want to pay a lot of money for it, uh, and you have Prime Video, you can wait for it. Then uh, I believe it should be within the next like, next month or two months or so. But all right, that's the Mauritanian. Glad you were able to check it out. I, I know that uh, it's just one of those movies that. You know, it got nominated for a Golden Globe and people were like, well, we got to watch it now, <laughs> myself included. Uh, that You're said, right. uh, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't seem like something that's going to get like Oscar buzz, but who knows? I don't know. I mean, I, I really don't know who is in our Oscar race right now at this point, uh, besides like, you know, like the Nomadland uh, categories and then like, you know, Trial Chicago 7. I really don't know who's a front runner besides those two films. So, I mean, acting wise, I mean, you know, 
best actress, best supporting actress. I guess could be fairly open at this point, but I don't want to save with pretty, any certainty. I'd say it's pretty competitive, but uh, well, I guess supporting actress more than anything. Um, yeah, we got, is it? We also have like Mank. We have Minari. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I know best actor is stacked, but I mean, I, mean, I know yeah. the other category. Well, don't forget, like it's a lot of it's legacy stuff, like with Glenn Close for Hillbilly Elegy. Right. Yeah. Well, that's supporting actress, right? Or is that she best actress? Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah. Um. I mean, yeah, I, I could see her being the this being her year. I guess uh, it would be really sad if it was for Hillbilly Elegy, but I mean, <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, yeah. I didn't, I didn't think that the wife should have been her year either, but you know, that would yeah, have been I mean, a little bit easier to swallow. Right. I mean, yeah, I think Olivia Colman was the better of the two performance-wise, yeah. but I mean, yeah, at the same time, it is like, oh man, just just give her an Oscar. Glenn Close, she's trying so hard. <laughs> it it is kind of weird. It's just dawning on me too. Like we usually have had our Oscar episode by now, but yeah, because it's delayed, yeah. it's it's kind of weird that we're even talking about awards, even though we're in like the full swing of the new year. But yeah, that's how it is this year. All right, well, that's it for mini reviews. Let's get into our first big review of the week. Tom and Jerry. After a lifetime of being the world's most famous enemies, you can't count on me like one, two, three. I'll Tom and Jerry are about to start over. Cause that's what friends are supposed to do. Oh, yeah. In the big city. This hotel has been host to four presidents, three popes, two kings, and we're about to host the wedding of the century. Do you think you're qualified to take on this position? I shine under pressure, like a diamond. Poor Rihanna. <laughs> One other thing. We have a mouse problem. With the what now? I'll catch it, sir. Everybody gonna shine. I was born like this, don't even gotta try. Oh, wow, this is so detailed. We could hire an exterminator, or we can leverage millions of years of predatory evolution. That the bed is <laughs> if a picture of this mouse is tweeted up to Instabook face or TikTok, we will be ruined. No, sir, that's not gonna happen. That rodent is toast. We've already had a Tom and Jerry movie before the, uh, the 1993, 1992, I forget. I think it's 92, uh, film 92, yeah. that one came out and I, I don't, I, I didn't see it as a kid. Did either of you see it? I did. I remember liking it quite a bit actually as a kid. Oh, okay. I actually just watched it this week because I hadn't seen it before. And I was like, you, I was like, I remember seeing the VHS a lot, like at family video and stuff. And I never got around to watching it. So I watched this week. It's not that good. I'm sure. It, <laughs> I, yeah, I I'm sure it doesn't hold up. So this is, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm talking from the perspective of like a seven year old. So, right. I mean, the main thing about that movie is that it's just not really a Tom and Jerry movie. Like they talk and sing and they're like mostly friends throughout and they don't really like do a lot of slapstick. Just kind of like a generic kind of like 80s uh, family cartoon movie that just happens to have Tom and Jerry in it. So that's that's the main thing about that's really weird and bad. So I will say comparatively, this is a much more faithful Tom and Jerry film, the 2021 one. Which is definitely a weird reality considering um, how this movie is set up. So, so this movie, 
as we've kind of alluded to, is a mix of live action and animation. It's basically doing the Smurfs thing. Uh, the Smurfs in 2011 took these classic nostalgic characters and just stuck them in New York City and kind of put them around a very generic story with human characters. And that's basically what this is. It's faithful to Tom and Jerry in the sense that it has a lot of Tom and Jerry like shorts kind of like weaved into the story here where Tom is trying to do something. Jerry antagonizes him and Tom chases around Jerry. The, the movie is a bunch of that, uh, but it's also a plot involving a hotel and Chloe Grace Moretz uh, being somebody who's trying to take on this new job. She's not qualified for a hotel and, you know, she's being um, hounded by Michael Pena, who plays an events manager. It's a bunch of stuff you don't care about. Uh, but the whole point of it is that this movie, it was supposed to come out a long, long time ago. With the success of Alvin and the Chipmunks back in 2009, there was this like new sort of like drive to get these characters, these like classic characters, especially Hanna-Barbera ones, to show up in these live action places because it was making a lot of money. Like Smurfs made a ton of money, people forget. And, you know, audiences, it, it's kind of a calculation for parents. They're like, I know who these characters are. I can trust that this movie is going to be OK for my kids. Even if my kids have never even heard of Tom and Jerry or never watched it, you know, on a Saturday morning cartoon, they can still, you know, know come with me to see this movie and get something out of it i did that with alvin and chipmunks i took like my niece to go see that she didn't know what alvin and chipmunks was in 2009 but she still enjoyed it because it's just a fun quirky family kind of thing and that's kind of what they were supposed to do with this movie but development hell kind of pushed it and pushed it eventually they they changed up quite a bit they they decided to go with like an animation for this where it's like a hybrid of 2D animation with some like CGI edges, but it really just looks like the Tom and Jerry cartoon style, just slightly 3D uh, in the sense that like you can kind of see them like interact in this world and it's not super jarring. It's not Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but it is sort of like a middle ground between that and something like the Smurfs, basically, which I personally think is great. I think a live action Tom and Jerry would have been just very, I don't think they would have been able to pull it off with like the budget that they have. You mean like a photorealistic version like Garfield or Scooby-Doo where they, they look like real cats and mouse? Kind of, yeah. Either that or like it's photorealistic, but it's more like Alvin and the Chipmunks kind of, or they could have gone something where it just looks like a real cat. And the cat like chases the mouse around and, you know, obviously that something like that would have been definitely not appealing to, <laughs> I think, the core demographic, I would argue. But anyway, this movie is directed by Tim Story, who, uh, you know, kind of a hit or miss filmography. A lot of people really like Barbershop, uh, but he is also the guy who did the Fantastic Four movies, Ride Along. I think he also did the other Ride Along movie and it's going to do the next one. So uh, and I think his last movie was Shaft, which I don't think we even talked about on the show because I, I don't think any of us saw it uh but that said yeah tim tim's story i guess i guess way more misses than hits am i missing anything with him no I, I don't think so i was trying to look him up on uh imdb i haven't seen anything yeah apart from uh barbershop that really stands out likewise yeah i was trying to figure out if there was anything that i missed and uh, with the exception of like the think like a man movies which yeah. i also wasn't that fond of um, oh yeah, yeah there's two of those huh anything that that stands out to me so yeah i'm sorry he never did a yeah. like a sequel to taxi because he seems to always do sequels but regardless uh so this movie was supposed to come out in the theaters last year uh it was its long-awaited release but of course the pandemic happened and so it got delayed again and now it's kind of coming out unceremoniously 
through HBO Max and I think in like select theaters because it's, it's the uh, the next one in the one month simultaneous streaming release where it's on HBO Max for 30 days. That's how you can watch it right now. Uh, but you can also watch it in the theaters. And then after the 30 day thing, you can only check it out in theaters or I think they'll eventually have like on demand, like premium on demand, that kind of thing. Uh, so that said, uh, you know, I haven't gotten into the story too much. So, Abby, why, why don't you talk a little bit about the setup for this movie and uh, kind of lead into what you thought of Tom and Jerry? Sure. Um, there's not a ton more than what you've already kind of covered. So uh, Tom and Jerry are trying to eke out individual livings in New York. Uh, I think Tom wants to be a musician and Jerry, I guess, just wants a place to live. Uh, and of course, they are natural enemies, so they chase each other around and fight a whole lot. Uh, they come into kind of direct collision with uh, Chloe Grace Moretz's character, Kayla, who uh, kind of cons her way into a job at a fancy hotel uh, the weekend that they are planning to host a uh, high society wedding for uh, a wealthy couple played by uh, Colin Jost and uh, Pallavi Sharda as as the uh, the couple in question, Ben and Prita. Uh, so Kayla has to kind of contend with, uh, with Tom and Jerry as they fight around the hotel, uh, try to pull off this wedding that she doesn't really have the professional ability to do, but she's not about to let anybody else get in her way. Um, and also Michael Pena, who is the existing... Um, events manager at the hotel who kind of has it out for her um she does have a, a an ally kind of in uh, rob delaney's character mr dubrow who i thought was maybe the uh the highlight of of the movie it feels like he and michael pena both know what kind of movie they're in and have this kind of gently comic arch performance that i think fits the material really well uh, a lot better than some of the other performances do um in general yeah there's not there there are a couple of of sort of more pleasant highlights those two performances being the main ones uh other than that it really feels like uh it it could have been a much shorter film that just kind of got padded out in some sort of strange ways um there's a an ongoing bit with a, a singing pigeon who i think is actually played by tim story um that has absolutely nothing to do with the main plot it just kind of adds stuffing i guess um it's like a previously on thing too it's like the thing that just happened here is a recap which right, i thought yeah was bizarre it is bizarre because like you you just watched it you were there <laughs> um so yeah there's there's some stuff that's in there that doesn't it it feels like it doesn't necessarily need to be there uh there are a lot of kind of weird plot contrivances that of course like don't hold up at all <laughs> um in any form of of reality but like Obviously, this is a kid's movie and it's got like all cartoon animals. So what do you expect? That part I'm willing to let go. Um, I'm not, however, willing to kind of let go the idea that because all of the animals in this movie are animated uh, and somebody I can't remember who, but somebody astutely pointed this out on Twitter that insinuates that all of the live action human characters in this movie eat cartoon meat, which is not a thing I can quite get over. Um so that's that's kind of where I'm at on Tom and Jerry. There's there's some sort of okay bits in there, but I think it's kind of outweighed by a lot of stuff that doesn't really hold muster and wasn't fully considered. Maybe that means that just means this movie is sneakily trying to tell us we should all be vegetarians. I mean, it makes a pretty strong case. Let me tell you. <laughs> I mean, the only ones we see dead and presumably eaten are the fish, right? Which is yeah, yeah. 
weird where they that's where they draw the line. <laughs> but I guess I guess the, by Catholicism rules. But sure. Um, I yeah, don't we know, never see like a hot dog stand that right. like cha- forces yeah. us to like you know confront our innate animal killing biases. So yeah. Yeah. Um, as far as I know. Right. Uh, also, rounding out this voice cast before you get into your thoughts, Will, uh, it, and it's quite a voice cast. Uh, we, we kind of learn through this movie that, according to Tim's story, uh, Tom the cat is uh, he he is uh, I, I believe he's black because his singing voice is T Pain. Um, his like shoulder devil and shoulder angel is voiced by Lil Rel Howery, and so I, I guess I, that, that that was I think Will your main takeaway from this voice cast. <laughs> oh, and also we should say uh, they used archived voice recordings for Tom and Jerry like otherwise. So William Hanna, Mel Blanc, June Foray. Just like those little like sound effects that they do, uh, including Jerry, of course. Uh, I think I, I don't think Jerry is voiced by anything else. And then we also have Bobby Cannavale as Spike the Bulldog, and uh, Nikki Jam as Butch, this uh, black alley cat that uh, I actually thought could, should have been the main character. I actually kind of enjoyed him and him and Tom's back and forth. Uh, but okay, Will, what what did you think of this movie? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not too far from where Abby is in that I think it's at once better and worse than I anticipated. Um, I expect it to be a fairly mediocre live-action animation hybrid, and that's basically what it is. But like you were saying, John, at the same time, like the animation itself is a little bit better than I expect, primarily, I guess, because they have the uh, 2D animation designs. I think the animation itself is primarily 3D, but the fact they choose to keep the 2D designs was definitely in the movie's favor. Um, I, I don't think it looks like amazing, but I think it looks pretty good, and I, I think it, it works fairly well within the environments. Like it, it wasn't too distracting as far as the animation and the environments therein. Um, but I will say that anytime they rely on animated characters talking or speaking, it doesn't quite look right. Like there's this weird like uncanny valley thing where you can you can tell like when their heads move, it doesn't quite look right. And I'm not I, I'm I'm not proficient enough in animation to know like what the terms are, but just that that's the decision that that seems wrong, and I don't know why the other characters in the world talk besides Tom and Jerry. Like I don't remember the Tom and Jerry cartoons enough to remember if they talk. That's always been outside. a thing, yeah. Has that been the thing? Yeah. Okay. Admittedly, it's been a long time uh, since I've seen Tom and Jerry cartoons, so I wasn't quite sure if that was a thing or not. But uh, as far as the movie itself, I have to agree with Abby. I think the the human elements of it are mostly ho hum. Like I I don't think Chloe Grace Moretz is given a whole lot to do with her character, and I don't think she really gives that good of a performance here because I think the character is just you know fairly two dimensional. Uh, there's not a whole lot to it. Just she's kind of a means to an end. You mean one dimensional? What was that? You said two-dimensional. You mean one-dimensional? Sure. Yeah, sorry. Uh, one <laughs> She's so complex yeah. and nuanced. It's annoying. <laughs> right. No, I, mean, I I was confused because, like, the animation design is two-dimensional. So, yeah. Oh, nice, anyway. nice. Um, yeah, in uh, any case, but I think the supporting cast most, with the exception of Colin Jost, who is very flat and awkward throughout, I think this is his first professional acting job outside of SNL, so I'll cut him a little bit of slack. But I, I, I think they could have definitely picked someone who was better for that role because I, I, I don't think the dramatic stakes are that compelling when it requires me to be concerned about him having a good weekend. Uh, just personally, that's just not something I'm super invested in or care about. But um, I think, you know, like the... Um, he was like also said, in... Like, um, I, sorry to interrupt you, but he was also in How to Be Single. Okay. I, I forgot him in that. I'll admit. Um, but, I, I, yeah, I don't I mean, think I, you're the only one, yeah. to be honest. Right. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Michael Pena and, and Rob Delaney are fun. I don't, I don't think likewise they're given a whole lot to do. And, and similarly, uh, uh, Ken Jong, I, I keep forgetting he's in the film because you know he he doesn't really get a lot to do besides like one climactic incident. Um, and then we got a few other characters. So I, I, I was telling John about this uh, off the air, but there's a character I don't know the actress's name, but the character of Joy is, in my opinion, the highlight of the film because I think she gets uh, the funniest lines and I think she delivers them in the best way. And I, I wish she was the main character because I feel like her character is a lot more interesting and fun than what we got from Chloe Grace Moritz. Yeah, that's uh, uh, Patsy Farron is that that actress's name. She's done some okay. uh, theatrical stuff and some some uh, stuff for uh, the BBC. She's British. But yeah, I recognized okay. her right away and I was like, no, you deserve better. So that's, I agree. Yeah, yeah she's, I mean, she's Spanish British. Oh, is she? Yeah, yeah. Um, she's from Barcelona. I mean, I'll just, yeah, I mean, in most other cases, I think her character would have been a throwaway one. But for me, every time she was on screen, I was like, okay, something funny is going to happen because she was, you know, she was consistently pretty good about making her character pop and, and have a little bit more personality than I think would have been given on the page. So uh, many kudos to her. You know, it, it's not easy to make these type of uh, one dimensional roles stand out. But uh, otherwise, yeah, I mean, like similar to Abby, I, I think it's a fairly mediocre animation live action hybrid that I probably don't think I'm going to be thinking about too much afterwards. But at the same time, it's it's better than your Alvin Chipmunks movie or anything like that. It just it just doesn't really have much to it. It's a fairly unremarkable film by and large. I mean, I do. I think the first album in the Chipmunks is actually pretty solid. I guess I'm, I'm on an island with that sometimes. But yeah, I, I got to say, I, I think this is a pretty easy calculation. If you really like Tom and Jerry, like you like old school Tom and Jerry, this is definitely worth checking out. You might actually like it more than you expect. I know a bunch of people have come away from this being like, you know what? It's really not that bad for me. I enjoyed it. That's that's what I've heard from a bunch of people at this point. And so I think, you know, a, a movie like this existing is definitely a fine thing. It definitely makes sense from a money-making perspective for them to do something like this. Because I do think there are some scenes, particularly there's one in like an alleyway where Tom is trying to reach Jerry at a window that is very reminiscent of like classic Tom and Jerry. That was like the one time where I was like, this feels like it has like that slapstick, that timing that is reminiscent of what made those cartoons really sparkle and come to life. For me, I, I never really liked Tom and Jerry very much. It was always like a background thing. My main thing with it is that I never really liked Tom or Jerry. I never rooted. I didn't root for either of them. And you know, Willow and I were debating this the other day of like, well, it's it, it. I think Willow, you compared it to like Sylvester and Tweety. It's like you like those cartoons because you. Even though you don't want Sylvester to catch Tweety, you still kind of root for him. You care about him, don't you? Uh, well, I mean, personally, I like Sylvester. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like I said, I like I think Tweety Bird's a fun character. So I, I think that dynamic is a little bit more fun and interesting. I tend to like Tom, but Jerry, I just don't think is a very interesting or likable character. He sucks, especially in this movie. Yeah, he's he, a jerk. Nobody likes him. He gets into everybody's business. He's causing all the problems. Yeah. He's the antagonist. Like, he, he's supposed to be the underdog, though. But then Tom is the underdog. It's confusing. I don't approve. Well, that's the weird thing about the movie itself is that it, it has a very simple plot. You know, it's just like... You know, basically keeping the hotel in order while this big event's going to happen. Then these two animals cause it, you know, just cause a bunch of kerfuffles. But they don't really focus on, like, what Tom and Jerry's dynamic is. Because, like you said, like, Jerry, ostensibly, is just trying to find a place to live. But then he, like, is also trying to steal the ring and then also trying to, like, you know, prove himself. And it's just this weird, like... Yeah, he doesn't have motivation. 
Well, I mean, it's not even that he doesn't have motivation. It just he has unclear motivation. Like he just he constantly changes like what his goal is or what he's trying to do. And I mean, like Tom's a little bit more decisive in this film. Like I, he like wants to be a musician, although they drop that subplot, you know, steadfast at the, in, halfway through. But at least a little bit more consistent, or at least a little bit more clear. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's probably one of the bigger failings of the film is that the aspects of Tom and Jerry's character aren't really defined, which is a big issue when the movie is called Tom and Jerry. <laughs> Yeah, I'd agree. They're, and they're barely in the movie, too. That's, yeah, good good points all around. I would say as a, as a cat owner, I am a little more predisposed to Tom myself. Uh, and also the fact that his ambitions are a bit clearer. But they're both, like, I think they're they're drawn cutely enough that I I feel for Jerry at least a little bit. I can I can kind of get on board either way. My, my uh, uh, I guess, uh, sympathies can shift slightly occasionally from scene to scene. Fair enough. I, I And, you know, we've talked about Chloe Grace Moretz for sure with this. And first of all, they almost got Olivia Cook for this. And I'm very curious what that movie would have been like. And probably I, better. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I really don't blame Moretz for this. I really I don't, don't either, think it's really. her fault. Yeah. I, I don't think she's a bad actor. I, I think that her thing is that her role in this and the difference between her and like Joy the Bellhop Girl, for example, is that she's just written to just move the plot along. She is like she is a walking plot device. And her character motivations, I mean, they, they really aren't anything to talk about. I, our introduction to her is conning some poor, innocent woman out of a job and lying the entire movie. They try to do a redemption thing with her in the end, but none of it really lands. I mean, I, I challenge anybody to watch this and really come away from it thinking that her character arc is anything to speak of. And I, I just think it's, it's all in the writing. Uh, the screenwriter here is Kevin Costello. And I just don't think that a lot of care and effort was put into it. I don't know if it really would have worked if Joy had been the main character because I think it would have all, you know, would have been zanier. But my thing with this is it probably should have just been a little weirder or a little more self-aware of its genre, kind of poking fun, poking holes into this idea of like animated animals in New York City. But it doesn't. I mean, it's just it's it's in New York City, but we're in a hotel the entire almost the entire time. So to me, it's like, why do this in New York City at all then? Or why why is this concept still a thing? It's just I, I feel like they could do so much more with these characters, e- even for people like me who don't even like the original cartoon very much. But as it stands, it's just a very generic offering. I mean, I, I never really understood either why New York was the choice here other than that's just the epicenter of the world uh, for these animated type films like the Smurfs and whatever, where they have to all be in New York. But. I agree. It, it all just felt like a soundstage to me. Like it didn't feel like an actual vibrant New York. It just felt like they were in this one primary location and then a bunch of green screens. Otherwise, so not quite sure what the decision making process was there either. So I'm a I'm a C on this movie. I, I think that yeah, there's stuff in here that's okay. I, I am also a fan of Michael Pena and Rob Delaney in this. To the point where if you're going to have the human characters driving a lot of the narrative, at least they're kind of doing fun stuff with it. Joy, too. Uh, She's not in it enough, I guess. Uh, She's definitely in it more than Ken Jeong. That was very odd. It it felt like they cut a bunch of stuff. But, yeah, compared to the rest of the cast, like, there there were a few running gags involving Pena and Delaney that did feel a little bit more of, like, in that territory of exploring a more interesting side of this film, like human characters that are just as animated as the animated characters. And I I wish that they had gone a little farther with that because we could have gotten something really cool out of this. But as it stands, this is just sort of a disposable family film that certainly does the job for some audiences. It's just, it's a little tricky if you have kids because I don't think that Tom and Jerry are 
quite recognizable enough for them to really like pop with kids but it could be i don't think this is going to be an album the chipmunks thing either where it launches these characters for kids i just think that it's going to be sort of a forgettable watch you know on a lazy sunday afternoon sort of thing and yeah that's fine but for me that's a definitely a c-type movie uh abby what about you yeah, I think I'm I'm kind of in the same boat. Uh, it's a it's a it's a C from me. I could I could potentially see this being like a movie that, much like the 1992 Tom and Jerry movie, actually, uh, that I might have watched as a kid and genuinely enjoyed, and then watched again as an adult and recognized all the ways it doesn't quite hold up. So, like for younger audiences, like maybe I could see it potentially taking off. Uh, I yeah, it just it just kind of barely squeaks under the wire though in terms of what makes it worth watching. All right. And uh, what about you, Will? Are you, are you a little nicer to this one than us or about the same? Or I don't think so. I mean, the movie that this felt the most reminiscent of was the Yogi Bear film from 2010. In that, like, that was a similarly kind of outdated film. But I think I remember in that film, like, the Yogi Bear and Boo Boo aspects worked fine, but they kept focusing on the humans that weren't quite as fun or developed or interesting throughout. And it just felt like this kind of pull, tug and pull throughout where... You know, like they, the animated aspects are fine or, you know, like they're appealing enough for fans of the property, but they, they don't really trust them enough to keep them the, the focus here. And likewise, I feel like the Tom and Jerry aspects of this film are better than I expected. I think they're they're more true to the character than we would have gotten in other film like like this before, for instance, like the 92 film. But um, yeah, I, I just think it's a pretty mediocre film. Otherwise, it doesn't really trust the brand enough to keep the focus on the main characters. The the aspects of the characters themselves aren't super defined, like I mentioned, and it just seems like a a lackluster effort all around. And weirdly enough, it felt more like a 90s Tom and Jerry movie than the actual Tom and Jerry movie from the 90s. So I'm not quite sure what to make of that. But yeah, I think a C is a pretty fair and fine grade for this. It's not the worst thing. It's better than a lot of other family films in this vein. But likewise, I'm not going to think back on this too much after seeing it. All right. A triple C from all of us. Uh, that's uh, not easy to do, <laughs> to be that mediocre, I guess. I, I want to see a Tom and Jerry road trip movie. That's that's in my wish list. If they were going to try to do this again, I think that lends that's a better formula. But Alas, I guess I, I have heard that the 1992 film kind of right. is that in part, isn't that's it? Ba- yes, just what I'm about to say. It, it oh. is basically <laughs> a road trip movie, unfortunately. Oh, dang. But, yeah. uh, I guess that's why they didn't. Oh, oh, well. All right. Well, Tom and Jerry is available to stream right now on HBO Max for the next 30 days. It is 101 minutes long. So, it's, you know, it's not the longest watch hour 40. I think it's the shortest film we're talking about this week by a long shot. Uh, but yeah, if you have a chance to see it and you're interested, by all means. All right, our next film, The United States versus Billie Holiday. Will and I checked this one out. Abby did not. And th- this is our first film covering one of the Billies. And this one's on Hulu. It is a biographical drama about Billie Holiday, the legendary Billie Holiday, who is played in this movie by Andre Day. Andre Day is a fantastic singer, uh, vocal performer. And she's been in like one or two other films kind of in side roles. This is her first like leading role. This is like her big film debut. Uh, and this is directed by Lee Daniels, who, of course, has won tons of awards, is pretty well acclaimed. Uh, a lot of people know him for his work on Precious, uh, based on the novel Push by Sapphire, of course. Uh, and that's man, that came out 11 years ago, 12 years ago, something like that. And yeah, he, uh, yeah. he has a history of weird titles in his movies. Like, I think you're about to mention Lee Daniels, the butler, the butler, which is another, yeah, yeah. yeah. His <laughs> name is, is a- in the movie. I mean, 
by all means. <laughs> also, well, this that movie, one was a uh, what was that? I think this movie too. I, I think United States versus Billy Holiday is not a great title. <laughs> like it's, it's not, just yeah, it's it's kind of wordy and clunky. <laughs> yeah, and it <laughs> makes it makes the movie seem like it's one long court case right and it's not it's it's kind of in the same sense like batman v superman dawn of justice it's there's definitely like an antagonism there's definitely like this movie is all about how the fbi set their sights on billy holiday targeted her in the 1940s and 1950s because she came out with this song called strange fruit uh to this day one of the most influential songs of all time uh, particularly in how it shaped uh, sentiment all over the U.S. over uh, lynching, the lynching of black people that uh, to this day is still technically legal. Uh, for those of you who don't know, lynching is the practice of capital justice on behalf of citizens on black Americans, people that they deem as guilty of crimes. Uh, most lynchings, as you would expect, are not only racially, I mean, they're all racially motivated, but they are inflicted for racial violence and for typically on innocent people. And obviously capital punishment uh, for any reason is extremely dubious uh, to say the least. And it's, it's something that, especially in this time and era was happening so often and was, a, you know, such a predominant thing that even coming out with a song about it, and, you know, just bringing awareness to it was so controversial. The FBI was like, this is too provocative. It's going to cause a lot of problems. This is 20 years, of course, before the civil rights movement. And this movie is of a piece, of course, with MLK FBI, Judas and the Black Messiah, two other films from this year that are tackling, kind of unpacking the FBI's antagonism toward prolific black figures who are trying to change things, who are trying to get people to stop killing them, um, which is pretty relatable considering uh, matters today. So that said, this movie has a lot behind it. It has a lot of commentary, uh, you know, one of the ways that they go after her, because they kind of say in this movie, Garrett Hedlund plays um, Ans Harry J. Anslinger, uh, who is a one of J. Edgar Hoover's, you know, top lieutenants i guess in terms of like bringing about a lot of these terrible things that have happened uh throughout the 40s through the 60s and uh, this film kind of gets into his legacy a little bit but their main strategy here is well we can't you know put her in jail for writing a song uh so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of go after her her drug use uh, so andre day has a really complicated and harrowing backstory of how she was raised um, she lived in brothels this movie definitely touches on that uh, she had heroin addiction um, plague her for many many years uh, all the way up until her death and th this film is also sort of a precursor for the war on drugs um, it's actually based on a non-fiction book called chasing the scream the first and last days of the war on drugs by johan Ari, hari and it's it kind of gets into how the FBI has for a long time used these sort of like anti-drug sentiments, used drugs to uh, target black people, black culture, and root it out essentially um, in very specific ways. And that's part, and I say all of this, that's only partly what this movie is. This movie is also a kind of love story between Andre Day's character and Jimmy Fletcher, uh, who we won't give away sort of his role in the film necessarily, uh, but people might have an idea of what that's about if they've a little bit familiar with the film. Uh, he's played by Trevante Rhodes. Uh, there's also a side story about 
sort of exploring, but not really, Billie Holiday's bisexuality, including a rumored relationship she had with Tula Bankhead in real life, uh, played here by Natasha Lyonne. Uh, but again, that's kind of here and there, not really. Uh, this film is also sort of tackling her various marriages with abusive men, drug dealers, and pushers, things like that. Rob Morgan plays Louis McKay in this. Uh, it's a dense film, a long film, over, two, I think, like two and a half hours long or not two and a half. I guess it's like a little over two hours actually. Um, but all that said, it's so much of so many things. It got nominated for a golden glow. So people were really looking forward to it, but it has been resoundly rejected, I think by critics or if not resoundly rejected, I guess it's probably fair to say critics have been mixed at best with this and not a lot of people have given it. I think it's, it's Rotten Tomato score is actually not that bad. And I think the main reason is because a lot of these reviews are complimenting their dislike of the film and it's just the way it's constructed it's script and it's editing are the main culprits of like why a lot of people are just not into this uh but andre day as billy holiday is fantastic like it's it's one of those performances that really knocks you out and it's a very confusing thing because i i personally was not liking this film at all but i was liking everything that i was seeing with andre day just embodying this this real person in a way that's just was it electrifying and it almost redeems this film. It's so close to really working, but the film gets in its own way and so many other respects. Um, that's a little, a little bit of my opinion, obviously plenty to say here, but yeah, Will, I, you know, I, how, how did you react to this one? And, uh, I, I hope, I hope you agree with me at least about Andre day because my goodness. Yeah. I mean, it's just a frustrating film because like I pretty much for everything you just said, like it, it's a film at odds with itself because, we have a lead performance here by Audrey Day that is so ferocious, so inspired, so meaningful. And it, like you said, it, it almost makes the movie work because she brings so much invigorated spirit to this performance and really makes Billie Holiday come alive again that you want to champion the film and you want to recognize what she's doing because it is really an outstanding performance. But Lee Daniels, who's a director I don't dislike. I mean, I, I really did like Precious when I saw it in 2009. I believe it was in my top five at the time. Um, and, you know, I mean, the the butler was fine. I, I don't remember it too fondly, but I think it, I remember thinking it was decent. Um, you know, I, I don't think he's a terrible director or anything, but his approach here is so rote and pedestrian and, you know, on the nose and, and so weirdly unmotivated throughout that, at least in its uh, display, that it's just hard to, it's just this weird, like, uh, pull and tug where it's like she's really giving this her all she's really you know keenly motivated by this character and this performance and Lee Daniels film just doesn't really service it at all it just has this like no real motivation behind it the editing like you said isn't really that inspired except for some weird kind of stylistic choices that that don't really fit the film otherwise and the script is also kind of haphazard and you know it doesn't really formally come together in a way that that really makes it worthwhile it, it just introduces a bunch of ideas and just kind of like throws them in there like you said like her bisexuality is just something that's like kind of addressed but not really infused into the story in any meaningful or uh, distinct way it's just kind of like oh yeah this is also something about her that you should know yeah you could cut it out and the film doesn't change whatsoever which is a horrific sign of how right. this film operates and not only that, but like some of the dialogue is also weirdly like super on the nose, like almost comically. So it has a lot of trailer dialogue, right? Yeah. Like there's we, we have to yeah. put this in so that the trailer can be like they're talking about this thing called the civil rights movement. You know, that's kind right. Of thing. 
Yeah, I mean, I didn't see the trailer, but yeah, there's like one where it's like I didn't either, but you can tell. <laughs> yeah, like there's one point where like I think this is what you're referring to, like the FBI agent is just like they say our song is the curtain call for the so-called civil rights movement. Exactly. Yeah, and, and it's just like no one talks like that, <laughs> like not in a meeting like that, like you know. And then there's like another scene where um I forget the actor's name, but the guy from Everybody Hates Chris. Um, you know, like he has like this line delivery that's like so forced and, and fake where he's just like, you're with us and you're leaving. It's just like some like weird like thing where she's like about to leave the tour Very bus. Dramatic. And just... Yeah. Tyler James Williams is the guy. Tyler, yeah. Who's a good actor. And I think he does, you know, outside of that line delivery, I think he's pretty good here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just like you said, it's just frustrating because, you know, I mean. Otherwise, it, it just has this very TV movie feel to it, which is why I'm surprised it was going to go to theaters. I believe this was a Paramount film before it was going. It went to Hulu. Yeah, it was. And it, it was sold very recently, too, like in December. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it was. I, I think it just missed its theatrical release because of the pandemic. Like, I think it would have gone to theaters otherwise, as far as I can tell. Um, and it just feels weird because like the style of it, you know, maybe because Lee Daniels has been working a lot with TV recently. It just feels like a TV movie. And its approach and style, and you know, it it just feels like this very odd give and take from a very you know cinematic, larger than life performance that is undermined by pretty much everything else surrounding it. I, I think the original release was like summer. Uh, I think it was like maybe like July of 2020. So it it wasn't super close, but I mean, I, they definitely were thinking it was going to hit that date. They thought COVID was going to be over, uh, but clearly that was not the case. Uh, yeah, I, I'd say you know, there's there's two main issues I have with this movie. Um, I'll start with the positive thing of kind of jumping off what you said about Tyler James Williams in this. Also, uh, I really liked um, Miss Lawrence in here who plays Miss Freddie. And I think her whole entourage, I thought pops. Like these were characters who I thought were just fun to see in here. I I would have much preferred a movie that really focused on her friendships with her entourage and, you know, their relationships instead of this like forced romance, instead of this antagonism with the FBI. And that leads into my main issue with this movie is the gratuitous focus on her demons where this film just over and over again is like, yeah, she was addicted to heroin and we're going to show it to you again. And again, we're going to show you being, we're going to show her being raped and abused. And it's just like dogpiling all of this trauma on this woman who just deserves far more dignity because yes, these things were terrible and they happened and it's not that you take them out of the film, but it's a balancing act. And I think it's almost like really questionable why the film feels like we have to be shown this over and over again. It's bizarre to me. I don't understand it. Um, I find it really frustrating, kind of similar to what you were saying, because this, this Billy Holiday is a, just a fantastic, a legendary performer. There, there's already been a film uh, kind of covering her life played uh, by Diana Ross from the seventies. I haven't seen it, but I've heard it's fantastic. And, you know, I, I think that's from what I can tell that film does a much better job of you know, tributing her, you know, without, with, while being honest about all of these problems, I, you can't get around that. But I think this film just sort of adds to like this sort of pity party that people have about Billie Holiday that I think is disingenuous, where it's like, ah, you know, she was so great. It's just too bad about, you know, the drug use and all of that. And I think this film tries to tell another, tries to add to that and tries to like help you understand how she got to this place. I just don't think it succeeds in doing that well because i think a lot of people walk away from this just thinking that this person was miserable a hundred percent which 
that's just I don't know I, I don't I don't find it very fitting and then my other issue is um, and we've kind of touched on it with like the editing and everything the issue is like they made a very generic biopic and I think they realized it was generic after they were done shooting and we're like well we gotta we gotta artsy it up we gotta make it better <laughs> you know we have to make it less generic so they that, i think that's where all of those weird editing choices come in where they're cutting things i think they cut a lot of the bisexuality stuff out for example to sort of like make it a leaner runtime uh, i think that they were like well we gotta we gotta like do something different with these transitions we've got to you know speed it up here because that that way people won't be like oh it's just another biopic it has artistic flavor but of course, like anybody who's ever made something knows is like just adding stuff like that for the sake of it does not dispel the problem or solve the problem or anything like that. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's definitely where I stand. Yeah, it's a classic Cobra Simpson thing. That episode where he makes a dating video for Flanders and he keeps adding star wipes. And Lisa Simpson's <laughs> like, you can't just make a video based on star wipes. And he's like, why well, have hamburger? We can have steak. And that's just why I felt like watching yeah, this movie yeah. where it's just like they felt like they had to use every editing tactic they could because they could i guess and it, it, it made the movie pop in their minds but yeah i don't know my theory i told you this is that i think the editor knew it was a pretty flat film throughout and he was just like this is i gotta make this count like i gotta make my time worth exactly. it yeah. so he, he just added all these flashes to show like hey look what i can do as an editor like i can do this and i can do this and you know uh you know <laughs> I, I, he, I wouldn't be surprised if his phone number just came up at one point, just like, hey, if you need any editing, just check me out right here. <laughs> um, I don't know. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head. Um, I just, It just feels like a movie that, like I said, it has like a TV movie of the week feel. It favors the melodrama over the humanity of the character. But the performance is often what makes it count. And it's that, like I said, that given pool where it's like the, the approach of the filmmaking is so rote and so by the numbers that it doesn't really serve as a proper legend or tribute to Billie Holiday, but the performance is so inspired and so keenly meaningful to the actress, and she makes it count that it it just feels like this weird kind of mishmash of tones that is just really frustrating because like you can see some key scenes in this movie where it, it does work or at least it is interesting and uh, even that sometimes like lee daniels incorporates some stylistic choices that i think are pretty interesting like at the end there's like a little like waltz scene that's kind of, kind of modernized that i don't really know what point it serves but it's like okay that's clearly from like a different yeah it's, it's from a different film of this and i don't know if that would have been better but at least it would have been more interesting than what we got here it might even even been more serviceable or more of a, a, a fitting tribute to Billie Holiday. But as it is, like we said, it's another kind of fairly mediocre movie that it, it could have been a lot better than it was. And this one is just a lot more frustrating because it should have been better. And, you know, that's just the way it is. Yeah, I think I think we agree. Uh, pretty, I think we're pretty aligned on this. I think that this film, I think that performance takes this film from something that I strongly dislike uh, but because of this performance, it's one that I dislike with caveats. Uh, and that cave- the, the main caveat is, of course, Andre Day. So uh, if if it wasn't for her just really bringing it to this, this would be a C minus. But her performance elevates it so much that I, I actually end up being a C plus uh, because the m- main thing, too, is that I just think that if her acting career dies because of this, I'm going to be very angry <laughs> because in a good movie, Man, imagine her in a great movie, like with a great script. Um, I I don't I just want to see that film, and I, I really hope that this opens a lot of doors for her because she is a fantastic uh, creative talent, and clearly she has what it takes to uh, like lead a, a great awards worthy film. I just hope that comes about uh, with something else. So yeah, C plus for me. 
Yeah, I'm not too far from you. I think I'd give it a high C. Um, I'm on the verge of giving a C plus, but like you said, like I think the faults of the film just keep weighing it down to the point where it just doesn't feel like a worthy tribute to Billie Holiday. If if I had followed her career as as a little bit more than I do right now, I think I'd be a little bit more angry. I think the fact that I was able to learn a decent bit about her life and her legacy made this viewing a little bit worthwhile. But like you said, it's just pretty much the performance here that counts. Like if it wasn't for Audrey Day's performance, this movie really would just be a completely lackluster effort. So I don't think uh, Trevante Rhodes is bad either. We haven't mentioned him. I, I mentioned him a couple times. And okay. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. He's not bad at all. Uh, I think it's just the writing. Right. I mean, it's not. He's not giving the same performance he gave in Moonlight, but I think he is pretty good in this. And uh, you know, and I don't think any of the performers are necessarily bad. But uh, yeah, it just it just feels like a really a missed opportunity, and it's frustrating for all the reasons we mentioned. And uh, you know, if, if Audrey Day gets recognized and gets you know an Oscar nomination for this, that'd be fantastic. But otherwise, I think this is a a miss, and it, it's a pretty disappointing one. Agree. I, I did, by the way, appreciate Leslie Jordan in this. I thought that uh, he was very cool. <laughs> very fun. Um, but all right. That is the United States versus Billie Holiday. Uh, like we said before, it is available to watch right now on Hulu. So you can see it for yourself if you just want to give it a chance. I I think that uh, you will learn about Billie Holiday, but I think that you should definitely go into it with full uh, understanding of its limitations or purported limitations uh, to be certain. And with that, we'll go into our final film. Um, and Abby, thank you for being super patient with us, uh, kind of hashing it out over Billie Holiday. Uh, I think that's, uh, oh, I, I'm glad that you chose this film, this next one over that, to be certain. Yeah, I think I think I am too. It sounds like I made the better choice. Billie Eilish, The World's A Little Blurry. The World's A Little Blurry is a lyric from one of her songs, actually. Uh, it's a... Uh, it's on the uh, the main album, I think, that's uh, when, when we all fall asleep, where do we go? Uh, which itself is a lyric from one of the songs on the album, one of the first songs we see in this movie. But OK, this is a new documentary directed by R.J. Cutler, and it is about the kind of recent life of the singer songwriter Billie Eilish, who has recently just blown up um, really just to the stratosphere in terms of her career. She's very young and this film starts in 2018 when she is only like 16 years old. And, you know, her career is definitely like starting to perk up. We explore her life as she is becoming more famous and we see in real time how that affects her, how she reacts to it, uh, her family life because she is extremely close to her family. And she, in fact, is making uh, her debut studio album in a bedroom with her brother Phineas and they're making this album called when we all fall asleep where do we go that of course if you are any any sort have any sort of awareness with the music industry has been one of the biggest albums in the last few years uh, this movie this documentary is available to check out in select theaters uh, for IMAX um, it was originally made by Neon and Apple TV plus purchased it pretty recently and it's now getting its release you can see it on apple tv plus and you can see it on imax i wish i had seen this on imax to be super clear uh, because i'm just gonna say i really really enjoy this documentary i i definitely wa um found it completely satisfying and we should all talk about a little bit you know our billy eilish baggage i guess as it were like where we're at with this artist because i think the main thing with her is that she is speaking to gen z and gen alpha right now 
you know, the, the, the teens, the tweens and everybody in between, you know, she is an artist who is really capturing the anxiety of this generation. And all three of us were millennials, you know, we're, we're kind of outside of that world. I mean, we can obviously sympathize with a lot of what Gen Z is going through, uh, to a lot of extent, but she is definitely an artist for this time. And what I really enjoy about this documentary is that I think she's going to make a lot of fans out of the uninitiated because I think that they are going to start to understand why she has really taken off because of how different she is from pop singers of before and right now, you know, and one thing I really like about this documentary too, I'll say is that it doesn't dwell on that. It doesn't, it doesn't have to like hold your hand with like, why is she so successful? You just see it play out. It's all show very little tell. Uh, I think I think this is a killer doc, and I'm excited to talk about it in earnest. But Abby Olchesi, what did you think of the world's a little blurry? Well, um, I I didn't I don't know I'm I'm a little kind of middling on it, and so I'll I'll start by by kind of airing out my my Billie Eilish baggage. I I think that she's very talented. I enjoy her music. The aesthetic around her I have never understood, and it makes me feel so old. <laughs> um, and so that's that's kind of the the thing that's sort of kept me from going all in on uh on on Billie Eilish. And so being sort of on the fringes of interest made getting into the documentary a little hard. Um so I'm I'm not sure if I'm completely with you John on like it making instant fans out of the uh the unconverted partly because it's just it's a very long documentary. It is two and a half hours. And the stuff that to me is interesting and like potentially makes me want to be more interested in her doesn't come until the second half of the movie. So you have to kind of sit through a lot of uh, kind of well-promoted teen angst, um, which is, I mean, and it's it's legitimate. I think her, her work is completely legitimate and what she is putting out there in the world is completely honest. But it's for a 32-year-old having to sit and watch somebody go through a lot of teen angst when all you want to do is just reach through and say, it gets better. I swear it gets better for an hour before you start to see kind of the interesting toll of fame and artistic um, development in an extremely online and interconnected age. Um, I, I feel like that was a bit of a tall order. However, I do think that the stuff that happens in the second half of the film where it goes into her like dynamic with her parents a little bit, uh, where it, it explores her relationships a little bit and like her, uh, her big Coachella performance and how that really takes off and how uh, all of these things that she's been wanting to do and thinking about and people that she has been interested in for a long time, like seeing those relationships come to fruition, that to me was the more interesting part of the movie. All right. Very interesting. So it definitely sounds like it's extremely my tempo, not quite your tempo, Abby. So I'm very curious, Will, where you stand on this one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm somewhere in between because I do agree with you, John. I think Billie, uh, yeah, Billie Eilish is a very talented young musician. Um, I, I think she does a lot of fun work. Uh, her songs are very catchy. I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I haven't listened to enough of her music outside of this documentary to to say like I'm a fan or if I have like a full appreciation of her work but from what I've seen like her music videos are very fun very inspired I definitely think the uh, music video for bad guy is a lot of fun and I've watched that a couple times and I think you know she she has a great visual style as well as a very fun uh, music dynamic and I think she's gonna become an interesting filmmaker someday if she's not already directing her music videos and um, she is you know yeah she's clearly what was it she is directing uh, music videos they they show it in the documentary oh yeah that's right 
Uh, yeah, I mean, she's really coming into her own as a filmmaker as well as a musician. So, um, you know, it's clear she's a multi-talented artist. And, you know, I'm, it's really exciting to see that from, like, the ground level, just watching her come into her own as an artist. And, you know, like Abby was saying, like, this is her from, like, the like very onset up. So it, it's it's interesting, I think, especially going to be in retrospect, like seeing where she goes from here, looking back on this and like seeing where she came from. But I, I do agree that there is like that that kind of PR vibe to it that is not really my thing, which I think this movie is a lot better at avoiding. It's not like that uh, Justin Bieber never say or yeah, never say never. What, what is it? The never stop. No, it's never, I, I, I think I, you I, had it. Never stop. Never stopping is pop star. <laughs> but right, never that, say never. I was getting I think the two is... mixes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we were talking about too, like you know, the Taylor Swift Miss Americana thing, where it's like a PR profile right. instead of like a real deep look at this person. Yeah, and I think this one it didn't bug me like the the Taylor Swift one because that movie was like trying, it was trying to be this. Like it's it's this one is a lot more about just actually following the artist as a person. Like you said, it's not like the like talking heads where people are just like, oh, she's a voice of a generation, and you know she's speaking to millenn or Gen Zs on this new level. It's none of that stuff. It's just you know artist like the artist herself you know showing her like how she's making these music how she's connecting with fans how she is able to interact with her family but also recognizing that you know like she is a, a normal teenager by and large like she has insecurities she she isn't really sure of herself even though she is this you know world famous musician and i think that stuff works i think that's why it makes it a cut above the rest as far as these like music documentaries are concerned but i agree with abby that like i think maybe because she's so young that I, that justifying a two and a half hour documentary about it. I don't fully think it warrants that runtime considering that like the more kind of investing stuff comes in later on when we actually kind of see the curtains pull back and we see more of her personal life and see kind of more like what inspires her music. I, I think that aspect of it is a lot more interesting than the, uh, the opening where we just see her, you know, in her, uh, in her home life, I guess, and just trying to figure herself out as a artist. And I guess that's, that's where I land on it is that I think it's by and large a good film. I, I think it's, like I said, better than these things usually are. But I, I don't know if it fully warrants the two and a half hour examination at this point in her career. I definitely get what y'all are saying with the length. Like I never I, there was never a point where I did. I wanted to stop watching or I wanted it to wrap things up. But there were times where I was like, man, this is really long. And so I do think that is going to be a barrier for a lot of people who, you know, you know, might be interested in this because uh, it, it does it does take a while um, to do its thing. It's kind of broken up into three segments that we've kind of alluded to. It sounds like, Abby, you kind of enjoyed more the second half, you know, because you, you, we start off. It's very humble beginnings. Um, I, I did appreciate that, like. You know how usually these documentaries spend a lot of time with like, and this is where they started and here's a bunch of footage of them at this talent show. Whereas like this one's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like she, yeah, she's been singing for a long time. This is kind of, it like quickly does like a montage of like where her family comes from and like how she's gotten to this place. But it doesn't like, I don't know, it doesn't, really sit on that or like really try to make a whole story of that. It just sort of like jumps you into the present. And I, I gotta say, I'm just, I'm really strong on this. I, I think this documentary is just so entertaining and I understand that like she's so young, but I think for me, like what makes this stand out and why I don't mind, you know, the, the whole youth angle of like the lack of life experience, because I was thinking about it for sure. It's hard not to, I, I think though, seeing somebody like, encounter those experiences and then wrestle with them over time that's kind of what made this really pop for me like th that's what made me really connect with her was like 
I, I did have kind of, I think Abby, you're kind of saying, it's just like, oh, it gets better. You know, you, you want to root for her. You want her to get through this. And I think part of the, the, the secret weapon of this thing and the reason that it, it's much better, I think, than Miss Americana is because she doesn't have to talk to the camera. Like she doesn't have to just say how she's feeling like to the documentarian. It's all overheard conversations. It's all fly on the wall. It's all her trying to just like talk about this with her parents. And I, I did have this sort of feeling of like, she has a good head on her shoulders, but she has a lot of problems and issues that she's working through. And this documentary, I think, explores that very faithfully, brings that humanity to her experiences that just brought me sort of like both joy and um, inspiration uh, for her as an artist. And I, I just really, I, I just felt so empathetic with her. And there were so many moments in this that stood out to me that in other music documentaries, I think like I barely remember most of what happens. With this one, I remember so much of like the conversations um, with her parents and like just little things that they say. The Coachella thing with Katy Perry is just, I mean, that is like such a movie moment, you know, um, that and the whole like Justin Bieber thing. There's a whole arc to that that I, I just was like, I remember watching it and when like the Justin Bieber stuff was being set up, I was like, oh, I really hope they pay this off in a way that uh, really works. And it just does. I think that it's uh, it just goes in these directions that make it such an uplifting musical documentary. And I'd say in general, 2021, what a year for music documentaries, I think, like between this and like a lot of the ones we saw at Sundance, it's it's really strong. And I think that's, you know, with Apple TV and every, all that stuff, I think that between this and like BC Boy Story, uh, clearly like there's a niche here that, that that's working, you know, like, you know, curating these documentaries, these like shows, these like live things that, you know, really connect with like what's going on with music today. And, um, I, I, I forgot to mention too my Eilish baggage. I, there's like one Billie Eilish song that I have like downloaded that I've listened to a bunch called come out and play. It's a single. Um, and I, I've heard her songs like most people like bad guys, the big one, obviously, but before this doc, yeah, I, I, wasn't a huge fan or anything. I, I didn't know any of these details. Um, I didn't, I didn't know, um, the documentary doesn't get into it, but, uh, do you all know her full name? Uh, the pirate mill name? Yeah. Yeah. Her, her yeah. full name. It's, uh, Billy Eilish pirate Baird O'Connell. Um, Eilish is her middle name. Okay. Interesting. Or one of her middle names. <laughs> yeah. 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 Her, her parents really come from the industry. Like her dad was in, uh, he has like a small role in, uh, Iron Man. Huh. Um, Cause it, they're like a Hollywood family. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's an aspect of the film that I, I wish they explored a little bit more because I, I always felt like I was kind of at a barrier with them, even when they're supposed to be kind of close. I'm, I still like get why they, they kind of push her into the spotlight or like why like they kind of feel comfortable with her dating this older guy and just like like those aspects of it felt a little weird to me. Maybe because we're coming off of like framing Britney Spears and we have like these kind of more conversations coming up in the media right now. But that was an aspect of the film that also I thought was kind of weird. I don't know about you two. No, I I, I liked her parents actually. I think they they seemed like very normal parents. It yeah, really to feels earth. to me like yeah, like they're they're down to earth people whose kid just happened to do this incredible thing, and right. they are like trying their best to parent her through like circumstances that really very few parents actually were able to understand um yeah. like there's a there's a really sweet bit uh with her dad kind of later in the film when she uh after, after she's gotten her uh her driver's, uh, driver's license. license yeah and she's able to drive by herself and he gives her like the you know kind of safe driving pep talk and then she takes off and then he has like a short conversation to the camera about like uh 
how how frail our bodies are <laughs> and how difficult yeah. it is to like just stay alive and just like you know he's a normal dad whose kid later goes on to win like a crap load of grammys like but that's that's not the important thing the important thing is that she's his kid um and there's some really sweet stuff with her mom too where she's talking about uh uh justin bieber and how that uh that how their relationship how their friendship is like kind of progressing and how nice that is but also how bad she feels for justin bieber like for his background and it just it feels like such typical sweet mom stuff that you don't normally hear in that uh in in that kind of context that i think those were two of my favorite parts of the movie just because they are so unexpected but like make absolute sense given what we know about that family and how they live yeah, and I mean, to be fair, like I agree, like I think those are two of the best moments of the film, and I I don't dislike the parents. I just kind of wish I knew more about them. Like I I still felt kind of at odds with them throughout. Like I I wanted to know more about like their thought process or how they felt about Billie Eilish's fame and stuff like that. And I, I think that's one aspect, especially because this movie's so long. That that was one aspect of the, the film that that left me a little bit curious or a little bit more wanting, I guess. But that yeah, might I, just be me. I could see that. I kind of disagree. I guess just because I think you would have to take out. I think one of the reasons this works as well as it does is because we really linger in the shows and her like performances and i think that's really for me at least very key to this film really like showing you how like why she loves to do this but also why it's draining her physically because uh, we see her like show after show and there is a real progression to like when we start out it's like it's intimate she's just like she's talking directly to the audience in a very real way but as it goes on and as she becomes more famous they really do lay on how this is wearing her out and how this is starting to overwhelm her. And particularly with the Justin Bieber thing, like like what you were alluding to, Abby, I think there is such a fascinating undercurrent there of becoming, you know, the star that you pined for for so long because they they highlight how obsessed she was with Justin Bieber. But then like like her mom is saying, she's starting to understand how Justin Bieber must have felt, you know, and how that's just got to be such a weird mishmash of emotions. It's something that a lot of these docs would kind of gloss over, honestly, because it's a little bit too real and it's not PR enough. Um, I think that those are the moments where it does rise above its own limitations that it does have of being a PR profile for the most part. And, um, and, and it made me think a lot about just seeing uh, framing Britney Spears with the parents because there is like an example of what not to do, you know, in the sense of like her, her parents, I think, didn't have this sort of like, and this, this is not something I'm not trying to be elitist, but I think part of the thing with the parents for of Billie Eilish is that they've lived in LA. They're used to like celebrity stuff and fame. It's not something that like overwhelms them, I guess. Like, it just seems like they have a good handle of the situation. Whereas like with framing Britney Spears, we learned that her parents just kind of sent her off on her own, essentially with a family friend and we're very hands off and we're very much like do whatever, be this like sort of like pop star and you know a lot of crazy things happened from there um and i think that like this shows that the next generation doesn't have to make the same mistakes of the previous generation not saying britney spears mistakes i'm saying like in general like the music industry and fans and everybody yeah i mean i would agree and i do think uh, as you were alluding to there is that interesting aspect of even though Katy perry and justin bieber like they're only like i think Katy perry's like 31 32 or something like that and and justin bieber is like 25 26 yeah. like 
they're they're really young people, but they're also like kind of parenting Billy Eilish at this point in her career. Like they have to kind of like keep her aware and like kind of shelter her from like the, the terrible aspects of this career. And that's also an aspect of the film that I found really fascinating. And and I definitely agree. I think that's something that in a lesser documentary they wouldn't even focus on. Or they'd cut that out. And I'm glad that they actually address that and, and kind of show this sort of like industry of like like care process, like making sure that like you know this this whole thing doesn't overwhelm them or like overburden them. And you know. Like stuff like that, I definitely agree. Like, even though this is such a long documentary, I am glad they include that into the runtime and, and made it a little bit more fuller than it might have been in a lesser film. All right. I guess that's plenty for us then to uh, finish out with our final thoughts and grades. We'll start with you, Abby. Uh, yeah, where do you where do you ultimately land for this one? Um, I think I land in kind of high B territory for this. Um, maybe not quite B plus, mostly just because of the the length of it. I did come around to it in the second half of the movie to a point where I really did genuinely enjoy it. I will say that it made me appreciate uh, Billie Eilish's music a little bit more than I had in the past. I don't know that I would say I'm a full-fledged fan, but I get it. Um, <laughs> and I might listen to her stuff a little bit more than than uh than i have before so yeah um overall i think it's the the length kind of for me puts it into more of the sort of fan territory but i think as a piece of filmmaking it still tells an interesting story and and works pretty well for the most part all right so high b for abby what about you will yeah i mean i'm pretty much a b as well um i agree with you john i think what really makes this movie stand out is both the fact that Billie Eilish is pretty forthcoming. She, she strives for a sense of authenticity in her work that really stands out in terms of uh, being a pop star of her magnitude. But also, like you were saying, uh, R.J. Cutler, the director here, he comes from a primarily, I think, political background. Like he makes a lot of like documentaries like The War Room and like A Perfect Candidate and things like that, that I think having him involved with a film like this. Uh, allows him to have kind of more of like a journalistic integrity and and ask some of the questions or explore some things that a kind of fluffier version of this film would be uh, less inclined to explore, maybe less interested in seeking out. So I think those elements make this, like I said, a, a cut better than your average film in this vein. Certainly, I think better than than something like Justin Bieber, uh, Never Say Never, or a whatever the Katy Perry one was. I think it was called Part of Me. Uh, like things like that, that I think aren't terrible films or anything, but they're just kind of like, you know, they, they, they serve more of a PR purpose than inviting us into their lives, even though they're by design meant to be inviting us into these uh, high celebrities lives. And I, I think this one is a lot better at finding that sense of authenticity. Now, then again, I don't really know Billie Eilish's life, so I can't say for certain, certain that it is, but it feels more authentic. And like you're saying, I, I think it strives for that authenticity in a way that, that makes it a more well-rounded experience. But Nothing, I think, that makes it an ultimately amazing film, but certainly better than this type of thing usually ends up being. All right. Yeah. So uh, two Bs. Yeah, I, I'm I'm an A minus. I, I genuinely think that despite the length definitely being cumbersome, I think unlike those documentaries, which I think we can kind of agree on for sure, I just feel like people will actually get something out of this for their time. Like they're going to get like a net value. And I really appreciate how this documentary can and will sort of like bridge a generational gap that I personally find unfortunate, um, especially between millennials and our younger siblings, you know, uh, the Gen Z crowd. I think that what, I, what I've always appreciated about Billie Eilish's music, I do think that it's an acquired taste for people who are a little older, who don't, who were more used to that, like really glossy, polished thing. And that, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just how 
it's the stuff we grew up on, right? But kids today just connect with a totally different type of music. And I think that what I what I I think that what this documentary does well is it I think it's going to help people appreciate and unpack her music, her lyrics, her persona, her tackling of these issues, like her authenticity um, from afar. You don't have to love her music. You don't have to think all of her music is really catchy and for you. But I do think this documentary can help people understand not just what people are going through at this age group, but also a little bit of like, what is it like to become famous in this day and age? It is like, it really is like a coming of age documentary and that it makes it very unique in that way. There's just not a lot of artists who could have a documentary like this, you know? I mean, thinking of like artists who became famous in their teen years and early twenties, there's not that, you know, probably not that much story there related to the music itself. A lot of it is going to be, you know, they, be, they, play a, they go on tour, they play a bunch of shows, they become super famous. They're, maybe there's like a downfall, but you know, that sort of stuff tends to not happen until a lot later. But I think there is like a real story here, a real narrative that is that has so much connective tissue that like really makes you think about a lot of societal issues. It makes you think about the industry and what about it isn't really working. The fact that she, you know, we start the, the doc with her making music in the humblest way with her brother and the film goes on and it changes and then the industry tries to like reshape her and mold her and change her. But I really enjoy how it ends with this, like this whole thing with the Grammys and this whole like coming home sort of thing that does make her story feel unfinished. And that is for sure. Like this is not the definitive documentary. I think this is not the definitive Billie Eilish story. I think she's going to go on to be extremely uh, influential in a lot of other things. I, I hope she is. Cause I, I really think she is a, a tremendous talent. But as like a, a starting point, I think for her career, I don't think this, I think the only thing that brings it down is its own like actual limitations. Of course, like I can't rise above certain things of like having this sort of access means that, you know, it's not going to be able to go into all the messy details that it probably should. Um, so we, I don't think we get the full documentary out of this. We get something that is, I think, really special. And I'm really glad I saw it. It's one of my favorite films of the year. Um, definitely one of the better uh, Apple TV things that's come out for sure. Um, so yeah, a minus for me and yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you both at least enjoyed it. I, I was worried it was going to be like a, you know, in C territory that would have broken my heart, but these are good. All right. Billy Eilish, the world's a little blurry is available to watch right now on Apple TV plus, and you can check it out in theaters, select theaters right now. And that'll do it for our show this week. Abby, is there anything you'd like to plug anything going on in your world? Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything huge or exciting coming up. Not necessarily. Uh, I I think I mentioned I have a couple of I have an essay up at Ebert right now about uh, the straight story. I think I mentioned that last week. Uh, I will have reviews. Uh, I have a full review up for Minari on Crooked Marquee. I will have a full review up for Raya and the Last Dragon uh, by the end of the week. And I think that will pretty much do it for me uh, for for this this week in stuff. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm getting ready. Like literally right after we talk here, I'm going to probably watch Ryan the Last Dragon. I'm very excited. <laughs> I hope it's great. Uh, what about you, Will Ashton? Anything going on you want to plug? Uh, yeah, well, we just released the second episode of Annie Ogre to Ogre Season 5. Um, that is our 
February episode, since I guess this will be coming out in March. So, um, yeah, I mean, that that's our 50th episode of the show, and uh, we have a lot of fun uh, celebrating that. You may or may not get a cameo from one John the Groaning in the episode. I won't spoil it, but, uh, you know, if you hear his voice, don't be surprised. And uh, <laughs> that's one of many surprises, I think, there in the episode. So I hope people check it out. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I have it downloaded and ready to go. And uh, I haven't listened to it quite yet, though. Uh, I don't have anything too much to plug for myself. I do have a review of Tom and Jerry up on Awards Watch. And you can re- you can read my review of the United States versus Billy Holiday on The Young Folks. Uh, I think that should be up by the time you're listening to this. And uh, yeah, I, I do want to plug something for a friend of the show, Corey Woodruff and Charlie Ridgely. They both just came out with a new podcast, first two episodes of their new podcast, Generation oh, yeah. VHS, which just came out. So I want to give that a little bit of love. Uh, yeah, Will, Absolutely. Uh, let's let you set that up. What's uh, what's Generation VHS all about? Yeah, I mean, Generation VHS, if you're a fan of Ain't Ogre, Toots Ogre, it, it likewise revisits films from the 90s and 2000s and gives them a more kind of critical, academic, but also uh, fan perspective, just like reevaluating the films of that time and just being like, hey, you know, like, this was kind of weird. Why did this movie come out? Like, why did Disney make Jungle to Jungle? Or like, what's going on with Good Burger and things like that. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of fun. I mean, we've had them on the show before. So, you know, I, I, I'm not going to say anything critical of uh, Corey and Charlie because I think they're very good guys and they have a lot of great things to say. And this podcast is no exception. So check it out. Yeah, highly, highly worth checking out for sure. Once you're done listening to N.A. Ogre Till It's Ogre, this episode of Cinemaholics, you got a lot of podcasts to get to, and uh, but it's a great it's a great variety. Yeah, they have two episodes out now. Um, I listened to Small Soldiers, that one is fantastic. Uh, just a, such such a great deep dive on that film from Joe Dante and how I think like their their niche with like their podcast it seems like is how these films really shaped them and how they sort of like exist in culture these sort of like almost forgotten films that are still somehow really influential um similar with I think their second episode is Good Burger which I haven't listened to yet so uh, definitely check that out I just was going to say that I had seen that they posted that first episode of uh of of the podcast with small soldiers and as as a person who saw that in the theater as a kid and enjoyed it quite a bit and remembers watching it a lot on uh on tv at various sleepovers since that time um i i was pretty happy to see that was up there i'm i'm interested to give that a listen all right that'll do it for us this week from the internet california i am john negroni from the internet pennsylvania i'm washington from the internet kansas city i'm abby olchesi see you next time